Truth or Politics podcast, episode 12, with Heather Shores, executive director of the Chieftains Museum, Major Ridge Home in Rome, Georgia. By the time the Cherokee are actually removed, they have their own national capital at New Echota, which is about 40 minutes from here. They have their own constitution modeled after the U.S. Constitution, their own legislature modeled after the U.S. legislature. They have their own newspaper, the first Native American newspaper in the United States with the Cherokee Phoenix that was published in both English and Cherokee. They had a higher literacy rate among the Cherokee than any of the Americans that were living around them. But it was never enough. They played the game by the rules they were given, but they were never allowed to win. The truth will set you free At least that's what I've been told I said the truth will set you free At least that's what I've been told I've got misinformation on This is your only show. All right, everybody, we are back. We're talking to Heather Shores, as I mentioned before. Heather is the executive director of the Chieftains Museum and Major Ridge Home. And I'm going to let Heather uh, tell a little bit more about herself. what she's doing when it comes to uh, Native American history when she's formally teaching at a college. Obviously, she's got um, what she's doing here at the museum. And, uh, Heather, let's, let's go ahead and get into that. What, what, I guess, really, what got you interested in um, being a, a historian? Sure. Well, I was really fortunate to grow up with parents that really enjoyed history. So while a lot of other kids went to amusement parks for vacation, We always went to historic sites or we went to cities that had a lot of history with a lot of museums and a lot of historic houses to see, like Charleston or St. Augustine, different places like that. So I grew to have a love of history, too, at a pretty early age. And when I was around 12 years old or so, we were actually at a museum in St. Augustine. I believe it was one of the Flagler Museums. And I leaned over a case, which you should never do, by the way. Mm. I leaned over this museum case to look at something behind it. And when I looked down in the case, I came face-to-face with a mummy. (laughs) And it terrified me, and it thrilled me at the same time. Um, I also grew up in the age of, you know, Indiana Jones. So Mm. that immediately sparked my interest. I became very interested in Egyptian history. And things just kind of took off from there. So from that point on, there was never a time when I thought I wouldn't do something in history. And I've been very fortunate to be able to work in the field for 21 years now. Interesting. Very interesting. This is a complete aside. But I actually uh, used to work at a museum also, uh, really what we would call the Louisville Science Center here in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, yeah. now I believe it's called the Kentucky Science Center. And, you know, we have our own um, uh, mummy 
but I did, oh, wow. I did simply because I was big and, and available get to help move the mummy, uh, from one space to the next and got to actually, you know, uh, move it in, in its coffin or sarcophagus, if you want to call it that. And, um, and watch the team who were doing some restoration on it. Um, and of course they did an MRI of it and took it to a hospital and did a formal MRI. And so anyway, I, I think that's really neat that you got that introduction by, um, seeing the, the mummy and, and sparked your interest even further. And then, so, Absolutely. and so then you, your degree that you got then undergrad, was it in history? It was, uh, Funny enough, because I had been inspired by Indiana Jones, I actually started out as an archaeology major. Mm, I wondered. And I quickly learned that I wanted to know why they built the temple, not how they built the temple. So I switched over to history and was hooked from there on out. So um, my undergraduate degree is in history, so it's a, you know, Bachelor of Science in History, or no, it's actually Bachelor of Arts. You're going to have to edit that part. So it's Bachelor of Arts in History. No problem. And I went on into graduate school. I was fortunate enough that my alma mater, which is University of West Georgia, while I was gone taking a, a life break after undergraduate school, I actually started a public history program hmm. because I knew that if I wanted to work in a museum, I was more than likely ha going to have to go out of state in order to get uh, an advanced degree. So they started a public history program, which is the same as museum studies. It's a little broader because it includes archives and other things in it. They're at West Georgia. So I was able to stay here in Georgia and go back to my alma mater to get my master's degree, which is in public history. So that was a great opportunity for me. And I was so very glad that that uh, school was the first school in the state of Georgia to actually have that type of program, and there are a few others here now. So I was able to get in on the ground floor of that, and it really prepared me to be able not only to work in the field, but to work in field, the field of my home state as well. So to really get to know the museums here in Georgia and how they operate. And as I said, I've been fortunate to work in that system for 21 years now. Interesting. And so now I'm, I'm contacting you primarily, as I told you when I first called you, um, because um, I'm involved in two projects. Um, one is this uh, podcast that I have that's called the Truth or Politics Podcast. And all that we want to do in there is just examine uh, as, as much re reliable facts as we can about whatever topic it is that we're looking at. And, and I think that this uh, topic about Native American history, especially the Indian Removal Act, um, certainly has some blurred lines on uh, everybody's understanding of it. I know in, in mine it certainly was, only because I think I just wasn't aware of so much of it. And then the second project was really what sort of sparked a lot of this for me was reading the book that I had mentioned, and it is uh, called Creek Mary's Blood by D. Brown. And it's, it's historical fiction, but it is about um, not just the Indian Removal Act, but it's prior to that. And then also all the way up through relocation and in, into the 1900s. And so I guess what, what I'm curious about for you then, as you're teaching history, I'm sure you're going to be um, exposed to this topic. Have you developed then a, a special interest in Native Americans and then and what you do with that? Or did you have that interest too even before you were taking the history courses and, and were finding that you're going to be teaching them? Well, one of the things that kind of got me interested in Native American history is I did not understand until I was an adult 
how important the site that I work at, Chieftain's Museum Major Ridge Home, was to state history, regional history, and national history. So I grew up in this community. So I grew up in Rome, Georgia, in a little suburb just outside the city. And this was just the big white house that you drove by all the time. Mm -hmm. Now, there were a lot of different school groups that you might be a part of that might come for a tour here, but it never really hit home for me what it was. So after I had gotten uh, into my degree and into my studies on history and became an adult and was working in the field, when I would come back home, I would, you know, notice the museum that was here. And one day I thought, wait a minute, Major Ridge. And I looked it up, and it was amazing to me that I had this kind of historical treasure in my backyard my whole life and didn't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Didn't know that it was here. Right. Um, so it had greater meaning for me after I became a historian. So when they had an opening here to come and work, I was able to take the experience that I had gained from working at a lot of other museums and come and apply it to this museum because of the significance that we have. So a National Historic Landmark is nothing to sneeze at, and I was able to come here and actually help preserve the house and interpret it a little differently than it had been in the past. In the past, this had been kind of a catch-all museum for a lot of different Cherokee history and focused a lot on the folklore of the Cherokee uh, and the storytelling of the Cherokee. It didn't really address much about the history of the house or of removal. Mm. So when I came here, it was one of my missions to be able to present the history of this home within the context of Native American history, within the context of the greater U.S. history. So I have been very happy to be able to do that. So because I got to come and work here, and because I had already been teaching U.S. history before I ever came to work here, all those things kind of married together for me. And I started to develop a deeper interest in Native American history, a deeper interest in Cherokee history, and trying to get to know the family that lived here. So many people think when you look at Native American sites today, you have one over here and one over there and one over there. And people seldom start to stop to think that this was a community of people before there were other communities in their place. So it's not these isolated areas. This was a whole community. This was a whole nation of people. So trying to present that story accurately is something that has become very important to me, not only here in the museum, but also when I teach in the classroom. That's just great. Yeah, I, I, um, I, you know, there, there are these little treasures that are in areas that you just, uh, like you said, will pass by and you know of them, but you don't really know about them. And, uh, and just very briefly on one of my um, normal bike routes that I would take if I would ride my bike to work that was in downtown Louisville, I would go past the Thomas Edison home. And it was the, the home that he stayed at while he was in Louisville, Kentucky. And mm-hmm. I still have yet to go into there to uh, take a little tour of it. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, significant in a much different way than what we're talking about with this subject right now. But sure. there, there are just so many things that, you know, you really can, um, you know, pass by and not be aware of them. And then I guess it's just, you know, that, that curious mind uh, that I got a feeling we share <laughs> that then Definitely. makes you want to know more about something and investigate it. And, and again, not to, you know, uh, harp and promote my podcast, but that's really why I started it is because I want to learn more about these types, these types of topics. And so the, 
getting to then kind of like the the meat of everything, and I want to talk as much as we can about Major Ridge, and and I have a feeling at some point we might even throw in a, throw a little bit in there about John Ross, but um, it, I'm going to throw out a, a couple numbers and just some questions to you, and this isn't a test at all. This is just trying to see if 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 I understand some of these things correctly. So. It, as a part of the Indian Removal Act that uh, was done in 1830, I guess, but then not really carried out for another few years afterwards, correct? Well, it depended on where you were. Yeah, okay. So with the Indian Removal Act, it called for any Native American group east of the Mississippi River to be moved west. Right. So lots of people just think about the Cherokee because they were the last to go. Oh, okay. But... Because they, they were the holdouts. They were the, kind of the last to go. They were the ones who were trying to argue things in court and, and see if they could stay and were really split. But you have all of these other Native American groups that go before the Cherokee. Okay. So you have everything from the Sac and the Fox tribes um, to the Chickasaw. You name it. You have all of these different groups because right. every single Native American east of the Mississippi River had to go west. And so often, especially here in the southeast, we really just think about the Cherokee because sure. that's you learn about you know the Trail of Tears or the which should be the trail where we cried and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it was every single Native American east of the Mississippi, and that's a lot of people to move. Right. And when you think about with the Cherokee, they lost about a quarter of their nation going west when they were forcibly removed. But when you tally that up with all of the losses from the other nations, it's fairly staggering to think about. And, of course, they took all of these people, and they packed them all into the same spaces as well. Right, right. And thought somehow that would work. Uh, or they really didn't care if it worked or not, as long as they were able to, to clear out the East and spread the, the United States out uh, as far as they could. So when you think about the Removal Act, you have to understand that it's everybody. Yeah, so, so Cherokee I mean, are kind of the last. Yeah, so so I guess it stretched as far as um as far northeast as it could up through New York yeah. and New England and and then and so did were all of them sent to I feel so weird saying all of them like they're not even people. But yeah. were, were all of them relocated just to Oklahoma? Um and Well, and, you kind of have that whole area of Indian territory mm-hmm. right there. So even with the Cherokee they're concentrated in Oklahoma, but they're also spread a bit through Arkansas and, and kind of it's that unorganized territory that okay. you have there. Okay. But they pretty much send them all into the same region right, uh, right there to be there. So it's, it's a shameful act, and we don't really think about it. It's so easy in the United States to talk about bad things that happen other places. But it's really hard to talk about the things that happen right here. Yeah, completely. And the... And I'm just starting to learn a little bit more about um, Jackson's uh, role in all of this. And I know there was the role that he had prior to becoming the president. And But then when the vote came down, is, it, am I remembering this correctly, that there he had a lot of opposition among the uh, representatives that were part of the United States in various, various states and that, that it only came down to like maybe one vote? to yes. to enact when it. it came, Tell us a little bit about that. Well, when it came to the Treaty of New Echota, it was ratified by only one vote right. uh, in Congress, and that dealt specifically with the Cherokee. With the Indian Removal Act, it's, it's a little different. So okay. 
it has different it has varying amounts of support. And there are always these arguments over and I hear this all the time from people who come into the museum. Well, if Jackson fought with Native Americans, then why on earth did he want to move them? And there are a lot of different reasons for that. A lot of a different different attitudes and different historical opinions on that. Mm-hmm. So, first of all, Jackson was first and foremost a soldier. He was a general, and he was a really good one. And as part of that, that means that you use one group against another if you can in order to achieve your ends. You know, it's, it's a means to an end to be able to do that. So he right. didn't hesitate to use one group of Native Americans against another, which, of course, you see with the Creek War mm-hmm. during the War of 1812. So you have that aspect of it. But there are a couple of other things that are thrown in there that I think are fairly interesting as far as the Indian Removal Act goes. There's one theory that as far as the South goes and as far as the area that was occupied by Native Americans throughout that what was then the quote-unquote western part of the United States, there was a real desire on the part of an American business and the American government to be able to extend the railroad lines as much as they wanted to. And that's going to be a problem when you run into Native nations and their land. Mm-hmm. So that's one thing. Another thing is the nullification crisis. So if you're not familiar, if your listeners are not familiar with the nullification crisis, this is something that happened in 1828. So in order to get elected, part of what Jackson and Jackson's party, the Democratic Party, did was, you know, people swing deals when it comes to elections. Can't imagine that still happened today, but it still still takes place. Uh, And it took place back then as well. So he actually um, swung a deal to be able to pass this particular tariff that would help northern industries and businesses. And southern states did not like the tariff. They referred to it as the tariff of abomination because they felt like it would it would harm their business. And that's a whole complicated discussion with economics for another day. Mm-hmm. The main thrust of this is that you had a lot of southern states that were really angry, in particular South Carolina. South Carolina as usual, was leading the charge when it came to any kind of rebellion and any kind of dissent from anything going on in the government. So South Carolina was very angry and actually threatened to secede from the Union if this tariff was not taken off. So Andrew Jackson ends up passing the force bill, which basically gives the government the authority to keep South Carolina and the Union and to keep them in line, militarily, if they need to. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of scholars that believe the Indian Removal Act was born out of a desire to appease the southern states over the tariff so that they would not try to align with South Carolina and secede from the Union. So we're going to throw them a bone by being able to clear out the Native nations in their space down there. And in turn, they're going to be a little happier with this tariff because the tariff won't go away for the next 10 years. Wow. So. That's another theory about why Jackson was really supportive of removing Native Americans. And, of course, he was not the first president who had considered that either. You had, as far back as Thomas Jefferson, particularly here with Georgia, you had his, his bill that he worked on in 1802 that basically got the state of Georgia to give up what was then Georgia land that would later become Mississippi and Alabama, to the United States government, and in exchange in the Georgia Compact, he said, I will remove these native people when we can do it peaceably and when the time is right. And then, of course, the buck kind of got passed down the line. 
Right. So it was not a new thing for Jackson, and I am, I'm not a friend of Andrew Jackson. Please don't think that I am. Um, I am not defending a lot of his actions in any way. But lots of times when we look at history from our perspective here in the 21st century, it's really easy for us to see the mistakes and see the problems, and it's very black or white. But for people living in the time period, there was a lot of gray in there. And they didn't know what the outcome ultimately might be on some things. So we have to be careful to make sure that we try to put ourselves in their shoes and to understand that most things in history are a little more complicated than than we might initially think. Oh, yeah, I think that's an excellent point. And really that it provides um, a segue into, I, I think, the, the misconception about much of the Native American culture um, around that time and, and how, um, and again, I feel awkward saying civilized in quotes, but how civilized yeah. the Cherokee were um, relative to other tribes. Um, now, I'm almost tongue twisted here to say it, but so, I mean, the, were the Cherokee really the only tribe to, to a certain extent that were, you know, using agriculture and business and had, you know, the, the log cabins as opposed to living in the forest or, or did any of that happen? I just have such a confused picture. Of, sure. of of what you know how how the native americans lived and we can't say all of it today but clear, sure. clear up a little bit of that for us certainly so um i can address i can address some different regions in the united states mm-hmm. so in the colonial period you see um big clashes of course between european settlers and native nations and you see a lot of those become really serious in New England and in those areas where you have people that are trying to spread out and bumping up against other people. So in New England, the New England colonies, and then in the middle colonies, you see Native Americans displaced more quickly or killed by warfare more Mm. quickly than you see necessarily in the southern states. After the American Revolution, however, there's a big push by the United States government to quote-unquote, civilized Native nations. And one of the reasons for that push is, I believe, we can make you less scary for people, and we also might be able to make a little money off of you and eventually get your land. (laughs) So you have different Indian agents that are sent out to different Native American groups. Some of those are well-received, like with the Cherokee. Some of those are not as well-received. And you have nations that reject more of that idea. Now, with the Cherokee, they had, they kind of grasped onto the idea, many of them, of assimilation as a future for their people. Right. So you saw a really successful um, campaign to assimilate the Cherokee. And that's something that I think Major Ridge is, is kind of a prime example of. So he was born in 1771 and is a little boy when the American Revolution takes place. In the 1790s, um, he is still living. He was born in what became Tennessee. He's still living there. And you have all of these white settlers that are now starting to push into that area because it's after the American Revolution. We now have that land instead of England. England had put a proclamation line 
uh, on the colonies in 1763 that said don't move beyond that line, mm. even though people ignored it. Now, officially, people can spread out. So you see all these white settlers that are bumping up against Native nations once again, particularly here in the South, where there's more room to spread out. So he will actually fight against white settlers, including John Sevier, who becomes the governor of Tennessee, and that's actually a Native coalition. So you have Chickamauga Cherokee, you have Creek, you have a lot of different groups that come together in the Southeast that fight against the encroachment by white settlers. Um, it doesn't go well for the Native American coalition. They are beaten at uh, different battles, but kind of their last battle actually takes place here in Rome, Georgia, called the Battle of Etowah, the Battle of Hightower. And after that, there's a tentative peace struck in 1794 that allows these two groups to kind of live next to each other. So for the Cherokee, they started to see that these white people weren't going anywhere. And they hadn't gone anywhere when they came into to Appalachia to begin with. I mean, Georgia founded in 1733, you know. So they were used to these people being around. When the Spanish came early on, they came to see what was here and kind of leave. Right. But when these other groups come, they come to stay. So now you have all of these people living around each other. Sometimes that's for the good. Sometimes that's for the bad. So by the time you get into the late 18th century, mid to late 18th century, Native groups like the Cherokee have changed. They are starting to live in log cabins. They are starting to trade with Europeans. They are starting to um, not necessarily modify their culture, but it's, it's like anything else. When you have contact between two groups, they're going to swap ideas and things between each other, some good, some bad. So... You already had that history, and the intermarriage had been a thing for quite a while. As I said, Major Ridge was born in 1771. His grandfather was actually Scottish, so that kind of illustrates how early you start to see an intermingling between these two groups. So I say all that to say that you have some groups like the Cherokee who kind of grasp onto assimilation, many of them, because they see that as the future for their people. You have other groups where maybe you have not had as much intermingling or even intermarriage, perhaps some of the New England groups that got pushed out early, like the Pequot and some of the others, where the ones that are left are holding on a little more to what they have because they have not gotten along well with the settlers who have come mm -hmm. and with people who have been here. So it varies from group to group how they feel about assimilation. Um, with the Cherokee, Again, it was something that they saw as a way to live with these people and do the best for their nation. But they still don't just become American. They hold on to their own culture, too. They hold on to their own ways, their own language. And one of the prime examples of that are mission schools that are established among the Cherokee. So you have missionaries that come uh, by the late 18th century and start to try and convert the Cherokee to Christianity. And they will often set up schools. So a lot of different mission schools, even in this area that, that I live in and, and work in. There are a lot of different mission schools. So, of course, these were missionaries that were trying to convert Cherokee to Christianity and, and win points that way. But the Cherokee saw it as an opportunity to learn what they wanted to from these white people in order to get along in the United States, but reject what they didn't want. So they would go to mission schools oftentimes so that they could learn how to read, they could learn how to write English, they could learn how to function 
in the white world, but they would not accept the religion. They would not accept these different cultural ways. So it's a way it's it's a way to be able to take your people successfully into the future, but still hold on to who you are as a Cherokee. Major Rich himself will never learn to speak or read or write English. He will always deal in the Cherokee language, and he will always have an interpreter for him because he made sure that his children went to these mission schools and figured out how education could could help them and help his people in the future. So it just depended on group to group how much they grasped on, and for the the Cherokee themselves, they accepted some aspects and rejected others. Right. So do you think then that, I mean, this is a probably a big question to suppose, but do you think then that the average uh, American at that point in time um, still still saw the Native Americans, including the Cherokee, no matter what they did that was uh, assimilated, um, do you think they still saw them as lesser humans, so to speak, and, and lesser people? Completely and totally. Yeah. Completely and totally. Uh, And I think that bears out with the history of the Cherokee. Right. By the time the Cherokee are actually removed, they have their own national capital at New Echota, which is about 40 minutes from here. They have their own constitution modeled after the U.S. Constitution, their own legislature modeled after the U.S. legislature. They have their own newspaper, the first Native American newspaper in the United States with the Cherokee Phoenix that was published in both English and Cherokee, they had a higher literacy rate among the Cherokee than any of the Americans that were living around them. Right. But it was never enough. They played the game by the rules they were given, but they were never allowed to win. Because they still had the land, and they still had to go. And there was a provision in the Treaty of New Echota that said, if you want to stay here, you can, but you have to give up everything about your Cherokee identity in order to do it. So I think that illustrates right there that you have to become something else Mm -hmm. in order to be a part of the United States. Um, And it just, it shows that they were always considered other. Sure. Even when we have second graders and younger come here, we, I will, I'll show them because a lot of people come in here and they have the misconception that by the 1830s the Cherokee are still in buckskins and all these kinds of things. And yes, I do have people that think that the Cherokee actually lived in teepees at one point in time. Unfortunately, when they come in here, because mm-hmm. people have watched too many westerns growing up. Coming up. So I will show them a lithograph of Major Ridge. It's the only known image we have of Major Ridge, and he is wearing his suit with yes. his hair cut short. And I will ask them, what about this looks American, and what about it looks Cherokee? And it never fails with the young ones. They always say, oh, his skin looks Cherokee. Right. And that was all it took. Right, right. That was all it took, unfortunately. Oh, boy. Well, it's, it's, I'm, I'm sure nationalism started long before this, you know, the, the, all the negative parts of nationalism. But that yes. certainly sounds like uh, we, we had it thriving there still. And, um, this, this is going to jump us away from things just for a second, but is, do we know historically anything that happened around the 1970s that opened up a new, uh, appreciation 
or um, a willingness to uh, revisit, uh, you know, I'm going to say atrocities, but just the, the, you know, the treatment of Native Americans. It seems to me that is a date for some reason that sticks out there when things were happening. And I don't think it was just yeah. because of Iron Eyes Cody and his, uh, you know, don't pollute commercial. So what, no. <laughs> what was going on with that? Did it have anything to do with the AIM movement or other things like that? It, it really did. Okay. Uh, so we experienced a, a kind of a big wave of, of change in the United States that starts, of course, in the 1960s with the Civil Rights Movement. Okay. So you start to see um, different groups that start to stand up for their rights and want something better. So after the Civil Rights Movement, it kind of kicks off an age of what we call identity politics in history, where you have all of these different groups that are pushing for their rights, that are pushing for their equality, that are pushing to be heard and to be considered equal to others. And Native Americans were part of that. Of course, you have the American Indian Movement. You have the takeover of Alcatraz. Um, by Native Americans during the, the 60s and going into the 70s as well. So you start to see a real change in how American society is looking at itself. Mm-hmm. You see a real change in that, and that really starts with civil rights and goes from there. So you had women who you know have the, the women's lib movement as well. You have gay rights become... Uh, a big issue. You have Native American rights. You have Latino rights. You have all of these different groups that start to use the the tactics and ideals from the civil rights movement to apply to their own situation. And that's really when you start to see um, American society, to what degree it does, because we still have problems with this, but look at Native American heritage more. That's just and fascinating. That's Sorry to interrupt. That's just fascinating. No, that's fine. Yeah. yeah, and it starts to become something um, that is considered, um, I hate to say this because it sounds it sounds bad, but it mm-hmm. becomes something kind of chic uh, to be able to align yourself yeah. with some of these different groups, including no, Native Americans. Sure, sure. You know, in, in, in pop culture, um, you know, there was the, the, the popular movie uh, Billy Jack. Do you remember that yeah. movie? You know, so I that's do. and, and I, I'm 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 just slightly too young still to remember that when it came out, and I've really never watched that much of it, but I do remember that that movie. And in my uh, church choir, we actually sang the song that was part of that, the One Ten Soldier song, and so oh, we wow. we learned to sing that. And um, so, it, and, and I still didn't necessarily identify the issues with that because I was a really young kid. Um, when, when that all happened, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm so glad I asked that question because it was just something, uh, in the back of my mind. It's like, there had to have been something in the seventies. Well, of course it was a civil rights that, yeah. that, that spurred that on. I just, man, I'm so glad I asked that question. I just never even thought about that. Um, yeah. And, and it connection. becomes, it change, it changes how American society thinks about different issues. Uh, you know, even even handicap rights, all those types of things. It, we start to, to look at people differently. We start to look at ourselves differently. And historians start to look at things differently, too. So it becomes an era where social history starts to take hold and become more important than telling the progressive history of the United States or telling the history of the United States through great white men on horses, mm-hmm. as we call it. 
so you start to see a, an effort for history from the ground up to tell these forgotten stories, to think about American history as something that was happening and participated in by a collective, not just by a few. So it really kind of shifts a lot of a lot of things. And it also shifts how things are done in, in Hollywood and in popular culture as well. I mean, you said it a while ago, the Iron Eyes Cody commercial. Right. You have that. You have different different movies that are done in different ways. I always think about Little Big Man. Um, (laughs) those Mm -hmm. those types of movies that are done and they, they kind of come out of that era too. Yeah. And I I can't remember if I told you this, but I got to shake Iron Iron Eyes, Iron Eyes Cody's hand when he came came to my school. Well, I learned another little bit about that story. (laughs) Uh, Uh The the reason that you and I uh, weren't able to talk last Thursday was the fact that I worked with a patient. And um, that particular patient, I, I don't know how, but we were just got to talking. And next thing I know, he told me that he grew up in Iowa and he lived right in between an Indian reservation and an Amish uh, community. And oh, that's an interesting one of, Yes, yes. And one of his best friends was a Native American. And he did all kinds of things with him. And, and so he's always known um, that story of, of Westerns, let's say, relocation and, and Native Americans and reservations. And he grew up as a, as a, um, a child on a ranch and, and worked that type of life. But um, I told him my little Iron Eyes Cody story. And you may already know this, Heather, but um, he uh, you know, took the, the ground from underneath me. <laughs> When he told me that Iron Eyes Cody was not Native American. He was not Native American. It's <laughs> I true. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know. know I didn't know. I had no clue. I didn't want to shatter your dream. <laughs> no, I wish you would have. I wish you would have because it was so, you know, bitter but then funny. And then I, I in my other podcast, you know, you're going to hear it if you uh, still tune in for the, the Twilight Zone podcast. I tell Daryl that story and it just shocked him. Now, Daryl has, you know, a family who his, his stepfamily is Choctaw. And um, he, he has always grown up with a very sensitive you know, perspective on Native Americans. And uh, he did not know the story about uh, Iron Eyes Cody either. And uh, so anyway, <laughs> but the point... Well, and you see, yeah, you see so much too. That's a whole other discussion or almost a whole other episode of your podcast. Yeah. Is to talk about how Native Americans have been represented oh, yeah. over time in the media. And that until fairly recently, you didn't really see Native Americans that were actually given the roles to play Native Americans. Oh, no, not um, at all. You know, which is, is shocking and is, is a real shame. So, yeah, that's, that's a whole other issue that we have mm-hmm. out there. Well, and even this, this is a very small aside, but to that subject, um, I had told you about Marika Sela, who we interviewed for the Twilight Zone podcast, who was yes. in an episode that was set in Alaska. And as it turned out, though, she is actually a Canadian Inuit, um, c- comes from a Canadian Inuit village. And in mm-hmm. some of the most famous uh, Native Americans who have been in film for the last 30 years are Canadian. <laughs> they, so they aren't even necessarily <laughs> Native Americans. They're indigenous to, you know, the, yeah. the, those countries. And so I was looking up Graham Greene, uh, you know, who was in um, the, the Kevin Costner movie. And, and, and uh, mm-hmm. he was in the Thunderheart movie with uh, mm-hmm. Val Kilmer. And, and, of course, he's Canadian. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> so and not that that's a problem or not. I mean, it's still, but that's a whole, again, a whole nother story is how did this, you know, uh, work in Canada, uh, with, with, with that group of people. So exactly. I'm, gl- I'm glad we took that jump forward a little bit and I'll, I'll take a, a jump backward once again and, and sort of refer to, uh, my book and the, um, character Creek Mary, uh, is, is again, based off of, um, what we believe is a real life person called, uh, Mary Musgrove and yeah. who was an interpreter. And it was just uh, D Brown's way of trying to tell that story. And he created family members in her family that sort of, um, modeled themselves after major Ridge and John Ross actually. And, um, and, and they, but their names are mentioned in the book too. And they have them interacting with them, taking a long way to ask the question. But what I'm really interested in is that the book points out that the Cherokee women, um, really had a much more substantial role in their community and their tribe or their nation than even what seems like the white women, uh, the colonials had at, at the time. Is there any validation so. to that? Yes, there is. Um, and it's one of the reasons, it's one of the things that I explain to my students as well. When we think about America and we think about the people who come here, you have West Africans who were brought here against their will. You have Europeans that come here because they want to. And you have, in many cases, and in Native Americans that are already here. But the three cultures are so different that they it is ripe for problems from the beginning. And that was one of the things, was gender roles with Native nations compared to gender roles with Europeans. Uh, Of course, at the time, you start to see kind of the first exploration with Spain and other things. You have, of course, Catholic Europe. That's one of the main things that you see. So with Native American women prior to European contact, they had a lot of liberties and rights that were unheard of for women to have, both through um, the tenets of the Catholic Church and through Europe at the time. And that doesn't change too awful much after you have the Protestant Reformation. So Native women in North America had a lot of different rights. They could choose their husbands. They could have premarital sex. They could divorce if they wanted to. Depending on which native group you were aligned with, there were many of them, like the Cherokee, that were matrilineal. So everything came through the woman and the woman's family. So with a matrilineal society, um, if you were a, a Cherokee woman or if you were part of a matrilineal native nation and you were a woman and you had a child, that child would be raised by your closest male relative, yes. much more so than your husband. Right, right. Because that was part of your family. Yeah, they mentioned um, that in the book, too. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, so you have that. So even as you start to see um, the early Native nations kind of go away and reform after Spanish contact, which is truly where you kind of get the Cherokee from, you see that there are just cultural differences that these two groups aren't going to get along. And women have a lot of power. And a lot of different Native nations or Native groups, women can be political advisors. They can be the leaders of that particular Native group. And that's something absolutely unheard of for Europeans that, that come here. So there's a big clash there. Now, with the Cherokee, the more assimilated they got, the less power women had. Oh, 
Isn't that fantastic? That tended to be the case. Oh. Uh, the more they tried to model their government off of the United States, you saw kind of less governmental power for mm. women mm-hmm. with the Cherokee. But you still had that cultural power right. that women held with right. the Cherokee. So, yeah, so you do have a history of, of matrilineal,ism particularly in the Cherokee Nation. This is such a great talk, Heather. Good, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm so thrilled. And I, I break apart in these, uh, break off a little bit in these talks with everybody. And I, I, I don't mind saying just how uh, important this information is, how changing it is, how altering it is for me and my perspective on this particular topic. And, and sure. I just hope that others, um, you know, will feel the same way about it and get some interest and, and look um, at things and, and, and travel down to Rome, Georgia, yes. and, and go to the Chieftains Museum. <laughs> come see us. And, you know, if you come to this area, we have Indian mounds that are 30 minutes away. We have the, the capital of the Cherokee Nation at New Echota, which is 40 minutes away. Right. We, we're, I mean, this is the heart of the nation before removal. Um, so we actually have Cherokee that come from the Eastern Band in North Carolina to visit their home places. And we have the nation in Oklahoma, people will come back here because they've never seen the home nation before. Wow. They've never seen this land. And we have a lot of Cherokee who come to this particular site. It has particular importance to them because we are one of the few Cherokee sites that they can come to that is not owned by a government. It's not owned right. by the government. Right. This is a privately owned piece of property. So they can come here to a piece of their homeland that does not involve a city, county, state, or federal government. And that means a lot to them sure. to be able to do that. Sure. I have Cherokee who come here that will not carry $20 bills because they have Andrew Jackson's <laughs> face on them. I don't think I could either. Yeah, uh, that, and I have a, a lot of Cherokee that come here and other people that come here that don't like Major Ridge because he did lead the treaty party and he right. did sign the treaty. Right. And we have always considered it our mission here to present the history and you form your own opinion. Mm-hmm. Just make sure that it is an informed opinion. And if it inspires you to go further and do more research, we've done our job. Right. So we try to get people to put things in perspective. So I have some people who come here that hate Major, Major Ridge when they hit the door. And they go through and they look at the house and they learn history and they come back and go, well, that's really sad. I'm not sure they had a lot of other choices. <laughs> no. You know? Yes. And then I have other people who come in and don't know anything about him, particularly if there are people who come from other nations. I had a, a couple who came. They were from uh, China. And they came here, and they asked me after they went through, why do you have this museum for this terrible man? So I had to explain to them the difference between celebration and commemoration. Mm, mm-hmm. They're two different things. Mm-hmm. So you commemorate things so you don't forget them. So whether the choices are good, bad, or ugly, you still have to think about them in order to know the history. Love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm caught uh, many times trying to differentiate for people and say, look, here's the connotation of this, but here's the denotation. And, exactly. and that's uh, something all my, my old English uh, teacher past gets thrown into yeah. that. And um, I wanted to say just, just briefly a little bit about uh, John Ross and Major Ridge and the differences between them. 
but I, I think we've we've we can just kind of go with a yes, you're right, Robert. <laughs> if if I get this right, <laughs> um, it, you know, we, John represented that group who was wanting wanting to stay more than what Major yeah. Ridges was, um, and wanted to. Um, uh, you know, go through the courts. They were very educated. They thought surely the most civilized group here would never be treated this way and still sent away. And ultimately, of course, that didn't work out in their favor. And so, so that's, and Major Ridge, like you said, was part of the group who then decided, look, let's sign this thing and we need to go because yeah. the writing's on the wall and we know that they don't respect us. They're never going to. And and we better do this, or they're going to kill all of us. I mean, I guess that's well, kind of maybe maybe that's too extreme to say it that way, but I guess that's no, what I, I mean, keep thinking in my head. Yeah, I think that has that bears that bears some some discussion. I think that that bears weight though, because one of the things I think with Major Ridge, of course, there's a, there's a pretty big age difference between Major Ridge and John. Right. Uh, John Ross is much younger, so he is of a younger generation, and I think about Major Ridge. And what he saw with the Creek War and the War of 1812. So once you have the conclusion of the Creek War in 1814, the Creek Indians are forced to give up, I think it's something like 27 million acres of land to the United States. And Major Ridge was part of that process. Now, he was not an angel. He made a good bit of money off of being part of that treaty process. Right. Don't get me wrong. Right. But I think he saw what happened to Native nations that didn't strike a deal. I think he saw that firsthand. And when it came time for, you know, there was all this pressure on the Cherokee for them to move, I think he considered that. He had seen what happened to those people, particularly at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend, which he was a part of and took part of. He had seen what had happened. And there is a speech that he gave, which was translated by his son, John, and we have... Um, we don't have, of course, an original copy of it here, but we have the wording of it here. And what he basically says is, we got um, our right to this land from God. The United States got theirs from the British. But they are many and we are few. They are strong and we are weak. What we do by moving is not necessarily just for our good, but it is for the future generations mm -hmm. so that they will be safe. Sure. Preservation. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think that he had seen enough in his life to know how badly things could go. And I, I think that probably helped form his opinion some. Mm. Um, now, there were a lot of people who did not agree with him. Oh, yeah. Lots of people who didn't agree with him. But that was that was his thought. And unfortunately, um, for the Cherokee as a whole, the United States was only going to align themselves with the group that was doing what they wanted them to do, of course, because it was never a legal treaty, according to the Cherokee, with the Treaty of New Echota, because John Ross didn't sign it, and he was the principal chief. Yes, and, and I got that fact mixed up a little bit. Um, now I'm going to be embarrassed if you will listen to the Twilight Zone episode, because I got some of my facts wrong. <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I remembered that Ridge signed it. I forgot about Ross being the principal chief, and I yeah. kind of put Ridge as the top of all of it. But, um, yeah, man, that's just amazing. The Still, the and, and, and I would assume you could say now this is being taught in college. Um, if, if you take this particular class that, yeah. that has this information, 
in in high school, I mean, you know, upper level history, I, for what I remember, was an elective. So either I yeah. took either I took a science or I took a history, and yeah. I remember being so pulled apart from that, and and because um, I really enjoyed that side of things, but here I thought I was going to have more of a science career. So I don't I don't know exactly what was taught um, for yeah. for those particular subjects. I'm hoping that you know there is a little bit more of an emphasis on that as teachers become more educated. And, and I do too. Yeah, I do too. And I think a lot of the problem sometimes is that they don't have a lot of time to spend yeah. Yeah. on different subjects because they are, there's so much that they have to pack in. So that's really where we try to encourage as much interaction with museums and historical sites, cultural sites, as we possibly can. And if at all possible, to actually speak to people who are members of the Cherokee Nation. Because people will come in here all the time and say, well, do you have Cherokee heritage? No, I don't. Uh, matter of fact, my family came to this county in 1840 after the Cherokee had been removed. So mm. here I am, one of the oppressors, right? Right. But well, you're a descendant, descendant thereof. Yes. yes. So, you, I mean, you can be a historian and study history, right, and know the ins and outs in history and, and look at the details and look at the facts and, and interpret those for other people. That's what we do as public historians. But it's also really valuable to make sure as historians that we're not doing the same thing Hollywood has done all these years, that we actually have the voices of the people whose history we're trying to preserve and interpret that are part of this. So I really hope that there are people who will, uh, who are teachers or who are in charge of, of different educational groups that will pursue interacting with the different bands of the Cherokee Nation or any Native nation that they live beside. Because yeah. that's where you're going to get their cultural piece, their historical piece. And so often with Native nations, particularly with the Cherokee, we we talk about, and it's taught in school, it's, you know, we talk about the Trail of Tears, we talk about removal, and we get them there, and then that's it. They'll yeah. live happily ever after. And there's a whole other story to that once they get there. And educational differences also happen state to state. I know I work closely with Dr. Alan Bryant at Appalachian State University, who works a lot with high school students in the eastern band of the Cherokee Nation um, on the Kuala Boundary. And he has told me that the Georgia State curriculum for school, because Native American history, Cherokee history, and Creek history is in third, fifth, and eighth grade curriculum mm. for the state of Georgia. Mm. He said Georgia teaches more about Native Americans and the Cherokee than North Carolina does. Mm-hmm. And yet they have Cherokee people living there. Well, that's what, yeah, that's what I thought. Um, and so that was going to be, this is, um, it may sound like I wasn't listening to what you're talking about, and I'm going to do the old uh, squirrel. Let's talk about this instead. But <laughs> um, I, I I do uh, remember at one point, um, gosh, again, probably 35 years ago, hearing someone say that they were part of a group of Cherokee that were in North Carolina or South Carolina. You said North Carolina, though, right? North Carolina. Yeah, yeah. North Carolina. And that that really surprised me. So I guess one of the things I wanted to touch on, but we don't have to go into a ton of detail about it, was obviously there are still Native Americans in eastern United States. Um, it sounds like for me watching your videos and all the other things that I've consumed, um, since talking to you the first time, um, some people were allowed to stay, um, if they were part of various, uh, families, I guess. Um, 
Yeah, so there are some different different kind of rules when it came to removal. So, uh, and it's a different situation depending on where you live. So, one of the ways that you could stay is if you were a Cherokee woman married into a white family. Right, that's right. Then you could stay. So that that was big. You could also hide out. Mm-hmm. This was something that worked particularly well for the Seminole in Florida because they hid in the swamps there. And as soldiers were sent in to get them, they were like, yeah, they're gone because right. I'm not going in there. Right. And that was a very successful resistance. You also did have people who would hide out in the mountains in North Carolina. But North Carolina also had a kind of a different, um, had a different story there with part of the Cherokee that were living there. So there was a gentleman who was white, who was adopted by the Cherokee, the Oconalefti Cherokee, um, very early on in his life. He was around 12. And he will grow up to be part of the nation. They adopt him, and he will actually become the white chief of that group. He will become the leader. His name was William Holland Thomas. Really? And he will spend his time trying to argue against removal, and purchasing land. So he buys several thousand acres of land there because he can, because he's Mm, white. mm. He is also a lawyer. He is a self-taught lawyer. That's how it happened. He is actually able to have his part of the Cherokee become what were called citizen Cherokee in North Carolina. So they could stay as long as they stayed on his land. And that land Mm -hmm. became the Kuala boundary where you have Cherokee, North Carolina today. Gotcha. Wow. Man, just there's layers here, Heather. Layers. Very much so. Very much so. I just love it. And for as much, as little or as much as I know about Native history, there are people who know a whole lot more than me. Oh, <laughs> yeah. me <laughs> no, I, I, I completely understand. And and I think that's the mark of a good educator. I, I try to consider myself that, at least in my, my informal educating that I've done in many years past, is you're not afraid to say what you don't know. Um, yeah. you know, you, you, you're, you're able to profess and, and speak on what you do. But um, a responsible educator will say, well, we don't really know this exactly, but here's what we think we know. And I think, you know, and not just today's society, but probably oftentimes people get frustrated with that because they want the just just tell me the absolute truth. You're com- you know, coming from the guy who has the truth or politics podcast. But <laughs> that's, you know, I we do it because we realize it's it's muddy. It's kind of gray. And and sure. and, and it, it, to be scientific about something. You have to investigate it longer and, and, and really know more about it. And this is not probably going to end us on a high note, but the, the last thing I want to talk about, um, and I really I shouldn't be joking about it, but again, it's getting back to some of the numbers, and then I, I had to keep just writing this down to remind myself to say it because I didn't want to forget it. Um, short story about myself, 1986, I went to Germany to study for a year uh, excuse me, for a month, <laughs> not a year. And um, during that time, not only was I there when Chernobyl happened, and we mm. got a lot of bizarre information because I was on Eastern, I was in Eastern Germany sure. at the time, but um, I got to uh, go to Dachau, which was one of the concentration mm. camps. Yeah. And, you know, just, just I, I'd been studying German for years. Uh, on my mother's side, they're pretty much 100% Swiss. 
And so I'd always had that um, uh, background in my family. I grew up thinking all little boys were called Snicklefritz. I had no idea that, <laughs> that that meant, you know, mischievous little boy, <laughs> which I guess I was. So, you know, and, and then finally getting there, seeing the, the area, knowing that I was in a crematorium um, yeah. and what had happened there, you know, was very profound for me. Yeah. And so take this years later. Now I'm reading the D Brown's book. And I'm also then after that, listening to you and your lectures that are on YouTube and doing some more reading and, and the description of the holding areas that the um, native Americans were put in during removal, I guess, I don't know if it was just in Tennessee or where it was, but it sounded so much like a concentration camp. And, and, you know, yeah. and our, 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 you know, first version of it. And, and of course all the death that happened along there. But so am I close in, in the thoughts that the way they were treated and sort of just pinned up and disease rampant and all those things were happening, correct? It, it, it did happen depending on where you were. Oh, okay. Uh, so this runs into, um, the, a lot of the questions that I get, people will come in and say, where did the trail of tears start? Well, it started where you lived. That was where your trail began. And depending on where you were, that kind of dictated what happened to you in the removal process. So I can tell you, as far as the state of Georgia goes, the state of Georgia was so ready to be rid of the Cherokee. And of the 16,000 Cherokee in the nation before removal, 9,000 lived here in Georgia, and the capital was here. Mm. So Georgia was so eager to get rid of these people that as soon as the time limit was up, because, you know, the Treaty of New Echota signed in 1835, ratified by one vote in 1836, and the Cherokee were given until 1838 to voluntarily remove. So Major Ridge and his family did. Right. And there were several that did. But once that deadline came, Georgia was so ready to get rid of the Cherokee that they rounded up all of the Cherokee in Georgia and sent them north to Chattanooga in the space of three weeks. Goodness. It was round up and go. So the removal forts here in Georgia, we don't have those as historic sites because they were temporary structures that were struck as soon as people were moved. Now, when they got to what is called Ross's Landing in Chattanooga, that is where they were housed and where they stayed and where they suffered a good bit. Right. And part of that had to do with uh, the accommodations or lack thereof that they had, supplies and how that did or didn't work. They were supposed to leave to go west in the summer. That was considered the season of sickness. John Ross petitioned the government to move his own people. So then he was in charge of organizing his people. And by the time they leave, it has gotten into the fall. And you have a very early winter that ends up being a very harsh winter. Right. And a lot of people also think that the Trail of Tears is one road. <laughs> Everybody took one road to get sure, there. Sure, sure. There were actually four different principal removal routes. So it depended on how you were grouped together, where you started from, and what time you started, and which soldiers were with you as to what route that you took. So if you were on that northern route, that went into Illinois in the winter for you. Mm -hmm. So 
you have a lot of suffering. Oh, yeah. Depending on which route you go. But depending on where you lived and how you were rounded up and where you were sent, that kind of determined the treatment that you received once you started your removal journey. Right. So they were not pleasant places. The temporary forts that were here were not pleasant places as far as we know. It's basically a garrison that you're stuck into um, until you go. You were They would knock on your door and give you an hour to gather up whatever it was you were going to take with you. If you had on shoes, fine. If you didn't, fine. They didn't care. Right. Um, so it's very much kind of that shock and awe get get your stuff, you're gone, and then you're packed up and sent north to Chattanooga. So it was not a, a pleasant experience no matter where you were, but as far as weeks and weeks of lingering um, and disease and sickness, that didn't happen here in Georgia. But it did happen in other places, and it did happen with other Native American groups that were forced to go west. Gotcha. Okay. Okay. Um, a couple more numbers to think about as, as we wrap everything else up. Um, do we, do we have sort of a, a, a known number of how much land was given up? I've, I saw somewhere out there that was 50 million acres. Is, is that a ballpark that, that, is, that is even reasonable? As far as just in the East or just by the Cherokee? I believe or? just in the East. I mean, the, the, the entirety of the East, but I'm not sure. Uh, it's just just something to write. And it's okay if we don't know the exact answer to that. Sure. I, I don't really know the exact important. number on that. Mm-hmm. I would tend to believe that that number is small. That's what I would think. If, so maybe If it you is think more about the entire eastern United States, mm-hmm. then that's I would think that that's probably a small number. Okay. Because if, if you think about it, if you want to get very, very scholarly and go very deep into the way back, you would have to start from the first few feet of land that was taken at Jamestown. Exactly. Exactly. And go from there. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I found a list of um, Native American treaties that were, um, uh, I guess, just uh, thrown out, for, for lack of yeah. better terminology. And and that's, you know, I think at one point someone said there was, you know, over 100 or more treaties that had been signed. Oh, yeah. And, that starts early on. Yeah, yeah. And there's real confusion. That's part of the things that I explain to my students, too, about the cultural confusion. So, you know, with Europeans that come, if you make a treaty, you're giving me this land. This land is mine now. But with Native American groups, they thought, of course, that it was silly to even think about owning the land because that was a living thing and because they communally held land together. Right. So they believed when they signed a treaty that they were giving these people the right to use the land, not to own it. <laughs> right. That's yes. That, and that is. makes a big difference. Mm-hmm. A big difference. They also believed that a gift giving was a very serious thing. And they they took that seriously within their culture. So by signing a treaty, you were giving them the gift of using this land. So you they expected something in return, it was a reciprocity, mm-hmm. which, of course, did not happen. Instead, you have settlers that are putting up fences on their hunting lands and creating farms and building houses and doing all of these things that culturally they just don't get. This is not what they do. How, how bizarre and, and just tragic the, the flip of the phrase Indian giver 
Um, oh, exactly. You know, right? it's, it's just it's talk about disinformation and, and just just flipping it. The the other couple numbers that I was still curious about, and and I don't know if it's just you know everybody's fascination with numbers when it comes to history and trying to have some perspective, but then throughout the let's say the entirety of the the Indian removal, how many then were removed? Is is there even within the thousands or so? Do we know any kind oh, of gosh. idea about how many were removed? You know, I would have to look that up. That's okay. Um, I, like I said, I know that there were 16,000 in the Cherokee Nation, and they lost 4,000 going west, so they lost a quarter uh, getting there. But as far as the totality of all of the groups together, I, I, I don't have that information. That's okay. Um, and it would depend on whether or not you wanted to start from the first removal, mm-hmm. which was the unofficial removal back in the colonial period, right. and go from there. Right. Or because you had a lot of, you know, King Philip's War and things that took place in New England that happened way before the Indian Removal Act. Mm-hmm. Or if you just wanted to go from the Indian Removal Act. And and I don't know the answer to that. Yeah, it makes sense. And I, I can't speak of it uh, myself. I think one point I'd read um two hundred thousand and then roughly through the, the the two are so different trail of tears, so to speak, that were in the south, and maybe twenty thousand people had died as a part of that. And I'm not sure again how realistic that is sure. uh, with all those numbers. Um, sure. And and we've already spoken about that there is still a presence of um, Native Americans in uh, North Carolina, and yeah. uh, boy, isn't that just uh, you know, without sounding too hokey, isn't that just a neat story? <laughs> <laughs> it is. And, you know, there are three principal bands of the Cherokee Nation today. So there's the Eastern Band of Cherokee Indians in North Carolina. There's the Kadua Band that's in Oklahoma. And then there's what we consider, or most people think to be, the Cherokee Nation in Oklahoma. So you've got the three different groups. And they kind of handle their history a little differently, and they handle... Um, I guess their business a little differently. So I know that, of course, Cherokee, North Carolina is the one that's closest to me. But the group there, uh, by the time you get into the 1920s and going forward, figured out pretty early that tourism was a way for them to keep their tribe going, to keep their band going. So tourism has been a heavy part of Cherokee, North Carolina for decades. And it wasn't always necessarily what their true history or their true culture was. It was kind of give the people what they want. We're going to, you know, where you take our land, we're going to take your money, um, which I don't blame them for a bit. So you would see things that were not necessarily representative of the Cherokee story there by some folks. And there has been a real push uh, the past several years by the younger generation to go back to more of their roots and their culture. So I mentioned before Dr. Alan Bryan at Appalachian State with his Gadoogie Scholars Program. He works with high school students that are on the Kuala Boundary that are part of the Cherokee band there. Um, and they learn about their history. And he basically it's a program to encourage them to become teachers on the native the for native schools on the Kuala Boundary because so many of their young people grow up, get an education, and move away. So they have talked very openly about what they have seen with the Eastern Band and with 
Cherokee, North Carolina, which of course has a, a big casino now. That's a big part of of the income that they have there. But just other things, like maybe we don't want to sell tomahawks in the gift shop. Maybe we want to do things other ways. But then there's an older generation that are there that don't want to get away from that because that tourism is the bread and butter and has been the bread and butter for so long. So it's really interesting to see how the different generations are viewing their history. And these kids are still facing things. I'll never forget there was one uh, she said that she was a waitress in a local restaurant there through the summer, and she had tourists come in, and when she was serving them, they asked her where all the real Indians were at. Oh, good Lord. Exactly. Wow. Wow. So it's still, we've come a long way, but we have so much further to go Yeah. <laughs> when well, it that... comes to Native nations and Native yes. history. And if the idea for tourism in the past was give these people what they want to see, Maybe we should want to see something that's more akin to the actual history. No doubt. No doubt. Well, that, that is a perfect segue, I think, for um, wrapping things up. And I, I think uh, a part, I, I had said this would be a part two, three, four, or five maybe for me on this particular story. And the more people that I can interview about it, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the better. But, uh, sure. Heather, thank you so much for uh, contributing and, and, and being with us on this. Um, I will uh, informally talk to you a little bit more after we stop recording. <laughs> but, sure. But uh, thank you so much again, and uh, that is just fantastic. I, 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 we had this little uh, send-off that we say on the, on the show and the more and more I talk to people now who are experts in their field, I don't know if it applies that much anymore. But what we used to say, and we still do to a certain extent, is um, we believe that for truth or politics, there's two sides to every story. Uh, there's your side of the story. There's the other person's side of the story. And somewhere in the middle lies the truth. I feel like you give me a lot of truth. I don't know how much <laughs> how much I want to say that, you know, that the other side of the story exists, but... Um, again, thank you so much for doing that, and uh, it's just been fantastic talking to you. You are quite welcome, and I hope that you and your listeners will come to visit us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's going to happen. Okay. That sounds great. Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. Awesome. Take care, Heather. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. Well, everybody, thanks for listening to the Truth or Politics podcast. Uh, I want to remind you that you can reach us at 662-374-0778 and give us a call and or text and let us know your thoughts. Otherwise, everybody have a great day. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. I'm not going to continue trying to respond to these re repetitions of the falsehoods that have already been stated here. Read my lips. No new taxes. Our politics seems more vulnerable to conspiracy theories and outright fabrication. We choose truth over facts. Some of the most dishonest people in media are the so-called fact checkers. We will keep this promise to the American people. If you like your doctor, you will be able to keep your doctor, period. If you like your health care plan, you'll be able to keep your health care plan, period. Just totally distorting everything possible concerning the facts.